Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And I'm excited this week to be joined by Jessica Salaji, a writer at All on Georgia, um, to uh, tackle our show today. Jessica, thanks for joining the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about these issues. Um, So on this week's show, we are going to talk about two headaches for Sarah Riggs Amico, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. Uh, Her company is involved in a uh, racial discrimination and sexual harassment lawsuit um, that has recently made headlines in the Atlanta paper. Um, And then she's also come under fire from Republicans for comments that she made saying that Brian Kemp could be a victim of the Me Too movement and not end up making it four years as governor as a way of her arguing for the importance of succession to the lieutenant governor. And for our second topic this week, we will recap the Secretary of State's debate between John Barrow, Brad Raffensperger, and Smythe Duvall. They had an Atlanta Press Club debate recently. Um, And so this, I think, was um, maybe one of the first times that they've been on a stage together where you could kind of compare their visions for the Secretary of State's job. Um, And then for our third topic this week, uh, Kaylee and Teasley is coming back on the show to talk transportation uh, with me. Um, So you'll hear from her later in the show. We break down some of the ideas that Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams have for transportation and talk a lot about transit and the future of transit in the Atlanta area. Uh, But first, let's uh, jump in on our first topic. Um, So yeah, Sarah Riggs Amico has a couple of headaches on her hand in her race for lieutenant governor. Um, The first one seems to be that she is making the case on the trail that the importance of the lieutenant governor in succession to the governor, and particularly maybe why you should vote for her in case you end up having a Republican Brian Kemp as governor, um, is that Brian Kemp could get caught up in the Me Too movement. Um, in a recent recording, she said, uh, she said, and I would say that normally that's probably a very unlikely event. But let's be honest, if we got, if we had Brian Kemp in sort of the Me Too era, I'm not sure it's guaranteed that he'll make it four years, um, is what she told a crowd at an event. Jessica, what was your reaction to uh, this comment from Sarah Riggs Amico? I will say that I was almost pleased to see her talking about the importance of the lieutenant governor's office from the standpoint of, you know, replacement, because I think that everyone kind of forgets that that's that's ideal and that's what would happen if anything were to ever happen by by force or by tragedy so i can respect that she was talking about that um but i was disappointed after having interviewed her and followed her campaign and really grown to respect her i was just disappointed that she took this approach kind of as a preemptive attack on kemp because you know the Secretary of State's office has been in its own controversy, but Kemp personally has not had these types of comments um, or allegations made against him. And I just felt like it was almost as if she's banking on the fact that, you know, if he's elected, she'd be replacing him because there would be something like this. And from a economic and political standpoint, it would be tragic for our state if something like that were to happen. And so I just felt like it was very poor taste. Yeah, I thought it was in poor taste, too. And and the thing I found maybe most frustrating about it was that this is not 
the first time that she, you know, this was not a slip of the tongue the first time that she said this. Apparently, this has been a line in her stump speech going back to June when she referenced uh, possible Me Too problems for both Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. This was before the runoff had concluded. And so this is not something that that she hasn't thought about before. I think this is probably a considered line that she, you know, maybe is trying to position herself as somebody who uh, supports survivors of sexual assault and wants to be a replacement for somebody should these accusations come out against Brian Kemp. But I think the most important thing to know for people is what you said, that none of that there's never been, as far as I know, even any whispers of anything around Brian Kemp related to sexually harassing or sexually assaulting anyone. And I thought that this sort of like cheapens the message of the Me Too movement that conservatives that I've seen, particularly in the conversation around Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court, called allegations against him um, fake and frivolous and uh, things that were politically motivated to lead to him not being able to secure that Supreme Court seat, and that lots of allegations of sexual harassment and assault are fake claims that are meant to take down somebody powerful. Um, the, the entire message of the Me Too movement is the exact opposite, that very rarely are these claims fake, and are they very rarely are they weaponized. And the whole point of um, sort of the cultural movement around this is to take women and other survivors of sexual assault seriously in you know, not not taking their claims just on face value without any investigation at all, but taking them seriously enough to not jump to that immediate conclusion that this is just a weapon used against somebody powerful. Well, I think you bring up some really great points. And, you know, when I saw first saw the Fetch Your News clip of her saying this, I think it was in Gilmer County. Um, I mean, I was surprised by it. And I wrote a little like brief piece about it on Georgia Poll and then kind of just let it go, but then there were these people that were coming forward and saying, oh, well, here's her quoted saying, you know, at a Brunswick event, and here's another one, and I was surprised, but the more I thought about it, um, I think it kind of went unnoticed during the primary runoff, simply because, um, one, you're talking about two people, so it's kind of like the GOP as a whole, not necessarily a person who's undeserving of the accusations or the, you know, forthcoming accusations that they're assuming are going to come. And then, too, um, when you throw in Casey Cagle in the mix, I think people are maybe a little less offended by it because um, he's had his share of scandals, and I think that was a concern among GOP people, too, not just from an election standpoint but from a governing standpoint that he's had some problems with women and allegations by women. So I think that's why, or I mean, that's my own assumption, but that's why I kind of feel like it didn't get as much traction as until, you know, recently when she was on film saying it when Kemp was the nominee. Usually in a running mate context, it's usually the number two on the ticket that sort of serves as the attack dog role. Um, we'll talk about the other headache for Sarah Riggs Amico that uh, prompted Brian Kemp to call for her to drop out of the race. But it seems like Brian Kemp is kind of leading the charge on being the attack dog against Amico talking about this and talking about the lawsuit against her company. Um, 
and Jeff Duncan, I don't know that we've heard anything from him on this, or or maybe he's only just echoed what Kemp has said. What do you think of sort of having Kemp be the lead on on making these attacks against Amico? I'm so glad you brought this up. You just set it up perfectly for me to bring <laughs> up. Because, you know, I, I've, I don't know if I've voiced it on this podcast, but I've been an adamant, um, a staunch opponent of what Jeff Duncan did to David Schaefer in the primary. And it was one of the primary reasons that I began looking at Sarah Riggs Amico because I was just so disgusted. And I think that was a, a very common theme among GOP voters. And so I don't think Duncan is in a position where he can afford not only to attack another opponent and just be that nasty negative guy, but to also attack a woman because, I mean, whether we like to admit it or not, it's just it just doesn't look the same. I mean, Kemp's getting blasted by some people for going after Abrams, and I think that's why he's letting the state party do a lot of it. But Kemp going after um, Sarah Riggs Amico when it's not even his opponent, I feel like it's maybe cheapening him as a candidate where you know he was kind of taking the high road through a lot of things over the last several months and here he is kicking a candidate that warranted or not I mean whether you agree with what he's saying or not it's not even his opponent and they're 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 bickering and I feel like he's doing Duncan's dirty work and I'm I'm not personally I'm not a fan but yeah I mean is there any benefit to this the the latest polling that I saw despite at least for my impression, Jeff Duncan being a lot quieter on the campaign trail, particularly since all the runoffs ended, um, was that uh, Duncan was still leading Riggs Amico. His lead, I think, is much wider than Brian Kemp's over Stacey Abrams. Um, I mean, is there any upside to to Kemp being the messenger on this? Maybe just more eyes on him than Duncan? I don't know if there's an upside. I really don't feel like there's a downside, though. I mean, there's. I haven't seen anyone saying, like, oh, gosh, I'm not going to support Kemp now because look at what he's doing to this lieutenant governor candidate. I mean, I, I don't I don't, I don't, think – I think it's kind of like a – it's just happening. It's not having a true effect on what voters think. Um, I'm having a really hard time with the polls that are saying that there are all these people who are undecided because I feel like I'm in an echo chamber of people who are staunchly divided. But um, – Maybe it is having an effect somewhere, but I haven't seen anyone who is even impacted by what Kemp thinks of Amico and vice versa. It, it does feel as though, rightly or wrongly, the parties have kind of polarized around issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Do you think that this um, undermines democratic messaging that that they're sort of the party that stands with survivors of sexual assault in any way, or or are Republicans cast unfairly in this debate? On the state level, I don't feel like Republicans are getting the same rap that they're, they've gotten on the national level, whether that's warranted or not. I mean, I'm still perplexed at how sexual assault and the Me Too movement as a whole became partisan in the first place. I mean, you're either for victims or you're not. You're either for, you know, strengthening the the circumstances around advocacy or you're not. And so I'm, I'm struggling with that. Um, I'm not sure where our candidates at the state level, I don't think they've gotten, I don't think they've been placed in a, in a bad position because of where they are other than what Amico has done. And I think it kind of backfired on her. I don't think it went over as well as she thought it would and I don't know what the people in the rooms who've heard her say this have thought but if you're saying that the polling numbers are still you know far behind Duncan and she's going after again someone she's not running against 
you know, what's her what's her end goal in doing that? I guess unless it's just unless the end goal is just to get Stacey Abrams elected and not be as concerned about down the ballot. Um. So the other thing dogging uh, Sarah Riggs Amico right now is a lawsuit uh, with claims of sexual harassment and racial discrimination filed against the company that she is executive chairwoman of. Both her and her father have said that the claims against her company in this lawsuit are frivolous, uh, but she was attacked by Brian Kemp, who called for her to step out, of, step out of this race because he alleged that she did not believe the victims in this case and um, did not do anything to stop what was going on at her company. Um, what do you think this lawsuit emerging now does uh, to her chances in this race? I don't really think it has an effect because if people are listening to her message, which, you know, I'm, I'm on her press list and I ironically got an email from Jack Cooper Holdings as well. And they're adamant that um, in instances where they they investigated internally and found that people were sexually harassed, that they terminated um, those people. And I, I guess, you know, is the, is the point of the movement that some of these people are behind to prevent this? I'm not sure if a, if a corporation or if we can ever prevent it, but it seems like they took swift action. And if people on her, uh, her supporters or who are leaning her direction are able to hear her message about this, um, which is, you know, that they were blatantly victimized and that they're going after people who aren't even political, which would be like the supervisors and the company and stuff. I don't really think it's going to have an effect. I, again, this is one of those things, too, that I don't really feel like took off. Like, it was news for, like, a day, and then people have kind of stopped talking about it again because it was Kemp um, who called for her to step down and, and drop out of the race and all of that. And I, I just don't see that. I think it maybe would have circulated a little bit more had it come from the Duncan campaign. So I think some of the details of what this lawsuit alleges have kind of gotten conflated together by the reporting that I've seen. So... It From reading the complaint, it looks like this uh, sort of difference of opinions between the person uh, levying the complaint and the company. The person levying the complaint um, says that they have endured, they, along with a few other employees, have said that they endured a racially hostile work environment. And there's plenty, example, there's plenty of examples of racist jokes involved, racist comments from supervisors and um, descriptions of white employees getting promoted and brought on to full-time status faster than black employees. Um, but the the sexual harassment charge in this at least seems to be that the sexual harassment allegation was levied against the person making the complaint, the person complaining that they were involved in a, or that they were working in a racially hostile work environment. So it seems to me that both of these things may not be true. The um, company is saying that the sexual harassment violation was was true and that that person was dismissed. But the person who's making the complaint who was dismissed was later reinstated at the company when um, a mediator from their union found that the sexual harassment allegation was actually not true. It all The details all seem very confusing, but they've all sort of been mashed together under this banner of a culture of sexual harassment and racially uh, 
and, and racial tension in that work environment. Kemp hit Amico on not doing anything about all of this stuff that is alleged in the complaint and basically accepting a culture of sexual and racial harassment and not and not doing anything about it and making money off of it as an executive at the company. Um, the thing that's kind of the thing that has this has reminded me of as it relates to Kemp is the allegations against him not revoking licenses from massage therapists accused of sexual assault in massage parlors that are supposed to be under the supervision of the Secretary of State. He would say that uh, sort of in a in a technical way that it wasn't actually his office, but a governor appointed board that was responsible for revoking and examining licenses of these therapists alleged to have committed sexual assault against their clients. But to me, it seems like this broader complaint about accepting a culture seems as applicable to him in this instance as it does to her if all of these things alleged to have gone on in her company are true. Um, what do you think about Kemp leading the charge on on this complaint when he has uh, potentially some of these similar problems of his own? I don't really think that it's hypocritical in the sense that he has these problems of his own because I do believe you know, in the process that's set up by the Secretary of State's office and that the boards are responsible for discipline and revocation. But I think it's interesting that he's alleging that, you know, Amico is completely responsible for everything that happens in the company when likely there are, you know, boards and, and divisions and departments that handle these types of things too. So in not necessarily similarities in what happened, but in the process and who we're blaming um, for these things. But that would be my perspective. Yeah, I think I think my complaint about his sort of technical, um, technical explanation getting out of out of the allegations against him, but not sort of acknowledging a company structure and the allegations against Amico is that even if Kemp, you know, knew that these sexual harassments had happened at massage parlors and that a governor appointed board wasn't acting, that he could have uh, pressured the governor privately to get that board to revoke those licenses. Or if that hadn't worked, he could have come out publicly. Um, And then after all of this happened, part of the reason that this was a complaint against him in the primary and uh, seemingly briefly in the general was that he then went and accepted donations and allowed the massage envy owner uh to hold to host a fundraiser for him um so so that i think is is the place where that um bothers me particularly the way that he levies his complaint against uh amico and if that's the perspective and the lens that you're looking at it through then i really don't think that they're similar um i mean if that's if you think that it should have all come out publicly then it's it doesn't resemble what's happening with her and how she's handled it and how her company has handled it, which, you know, her company is not a public entity. Like, it's not a something that's subject to just public information the same way that the Secretary of State's office is and licensing board. So, I mean, it's kind of a hard comparison, but if, if you're looking through it through the lens that you are, obviously what happened to the Secretary of State's office would be more egregious. Yeah, I do think, though, that... Um you know, if everything in this complaint 
were to turn out to be true, there's there's an ongoing trial related to these legal complaints. Um, then I do think it's a failure on Riggs Amico's part, not not that she necessarily had direct oversight over these things, but that there are obviously issues within the company about how things get elevated and the way in which some of these things are described, like multiple attempts at uh, making complaints about other employees um, that somebody from a higher up level in the company um, should have stepped in to sort of fix this culture. Um, So I, I don't think that you know, it's hard to tell because it's a complaint that the company is saying none of it's true and it's all um, meant to meant as retaliation. But um, if it does turn out to be true, that the allegations of what went on in that company are are pretty problematic. All right. So with that, let's move on to our second topic of the week. Um, so recently, the Atlanta Press Club hosted a debate. A de- hosted a debate between the candidates for Secretary of State. Um, this was John Barrow, Brad Raffensperger, and Smythe Duval, who are all competing for this office. Um, and this debate primarily focused on uh, the candidates' positions on electoral integrity issues, on what they would do about changing um, Georgia's procedures for voting, which we talked about before on this show and which has been um, a hot topic for debate uh, since the last legislative session. Um, what were your takeaways from this debate, Jessica, um, from how these candidates performed or, or where they stood on the issues? Well, first of all, I feel strongly that Brad Raffensperger just kind of showed his lack of passion and, and lack of true understanding of what the office needs. I felt like John Barrow did an outstanding job. Obviously, he's a seasoned debater. I mean, he had contentious primaries and general elections when he was a congressman and so you know he's obviously well versed on on how to send over the one-liners across the podium and I think he did a great job of kind of highlighting what um, Raffensperger doesn't know. Um, Smythe Duval you know he's very educated on the issues but in true libertarian fashion like he doesn't really get anyone zazzed up about what he's talking about um but he he performed very well he answered the questions honestly and consistently with what he said in other interviews and what he's put out there and if if there was a winner it was obviously barrow um but i was pleased with how smith duval did as well yeah i kind of felt like the debate just casually watching it looked like barrow dropped out of the major leagues and came down and to beat up on some kids in the minors <laughs> Uh, because he he did come off much more seasoned, uh, really stuck to his points. Um, and, and I did notice in a couple of instances, Raffensperger sort of just said that he basically couldn't speak on something. He he said he really couldn't speak on dentistry boards, pharmacy boards, nurses boards, trying to get out from under the Secretary of State's office. He really like didn't have a sense of like what the importance of that issue was and then sort of gave a platitude about how he would do better if if he was the next Secretary of State. His answer his answer there was horrible. I mean, it was painful to watch. You just wanted him to just stop talking because every word he made made it worse. It was, it was and that was the first question. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah, it was it, like it did not get off to a good start for him. No. Um, what did you think of the discussion around uh, Georgia's voting machines and electoral integrity? Do do all three of these candidates have a good sense of what needs to be done, you think, or, or did one stand out in your view? 
Well, you know, I, I felt like what Samayat Duval said to or asked of Brad Raffensperger about his $100 million plan um, for new programs and everything was interesting because he said, you know, how can you be for this and be a fiscal conservative when all these other states around us who have already upgraded machines have spent considerably less? And so I felt like that was a really good point. Um, and I appreciated, you know, the position that Barrow has taken and, and has made clear that he has taken from the beginning because there's been a lot of organizations, like specifically the Faith and Freedom Coalition and some other activists that have put out some information about Barrow that isn't true and contradicts what he said and what it has on his website and what can, continues to um, advocate for. And so I was pleased that, you know, he was clear that he wants verifiable voting um, and machines that are upgraded and kind of a little bit of the best of all of the worlds that everyone's talking about. Another interesting point in the debate, I thought, was um, towards the end, all three candidates got to respond to whether or not the Secretary of State's office should be a partisan office. And I think there was some confusion about what the implication would be if it was not a partisan office, whether you would have nonpartisan elections like you do sort of nominally at the local level, or whether the Secretary of State would just be an appointee of the governor, which sort of takes away the idea that it's nonpartisan if it's a partisan making an appointment. Um, what do you think about that issue of the Secretary of State's office being a nonpartisan office? Um, do you think that Georgia should make any changes as it relates to that? You know, I've thought long and hard about this because as a libertarian, I'm obviously dissatisfied with both parties often. And I'm always left with, how could it truly be nonpartisan? How could you ensure that I mean, people have beliefs, people have leanings, and I mean, even as a libertarian, I have leanings, and so there would be an, an element of partisanship um, regardless. Whether that would, you know, maybe if there weren't some party allegiances, it would, it would help a little bit, but I'm not sure that it would be anything more than marginal because, again, you're either going to advocate for something that the party in power is for or you're going to advocate against it and so i'm not sure that the office can actually be um nonpartisan. i always would like it to be elected i don't want it to be appointed um that would be a nightmare <laughs> another thing that stood out about barrow to me was he really seemed to be driving towards republican voters um maybe just rhetorically but but he i think is unique among Democratic statewide candidates in um, trying to find crossover appeal from Republicans. You know, both Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico have been um, very outspoken about progressive messaging. Um, Abrams does call on her work with Republicans, but but doesn't seem to be sort of picking some issues that Republicans might like the way that Jason Carter did a few years ago. Um Barrow twice, I thought he he said one line that sort of echoed Brian Kemp when he talked about how um, Raffensperger had sort of been behind on his property taxes and was taking advantage of a loophole in the law. Um, he said, if that ain't disqualifying, it ought to be. And when he uh, talked about hackers and, and whether or not people were interested in uh, messing with elections. He said, you know, that maybe it could be the Russians, maybe it could be a 400 pound guy on his bed in New Jersey, uh, which calls back to a Trump line. Um, what did you think of uh, Barrow trying to find some crossover appeal? Um, I think honestly, it's just who he is. I mean, if you recall who he was as a congressman, he was the congressman for my district down here in Southeast Georgia. And 
um, when he lost to Rick Allen, and he was your moderate. I mean, he wasn't always with the Democrats. He was a pro-Second Amendment guy. Um, he was kind of an issue-by-issue issue person, which frustrated both sides, but appealed to both sides, too. And so I don't think he's deviating from who he has been. It's kind of like the voter ID. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about loosening our voter ID laws, and that's not really, at least when he, I had a conversation with an interview with him, that wasn't the approach he took. It was not that we need to change what we have, but we need to change some of the circumstances around other processes, like how you register and things like that, not necessarily the laws that are in place. And so I think that's just who everyone has come to know John Barrow to be, is the guy who is smack dab in the middle and taking a little bit from everywhere, whether you think that's the best of everywhere or not, is kind of up to you. But um, I think there's going to be a lot of crossover voting for John Barrow. The other, the interesting thing that uh, Smug Duval raised that I haven't seen raised anywhere else, um, at least in, in Georgia elections, is switching Georgia to a ranked choice voting system. Um, what do you think of of that possibility in, in changing the way that Georgians vote? I, I like it. I mean, we all get frustrated by the runoffs. Um, and one, they're, they're expensive. They're expensive for candidates. They're expensive for taxpayers. And this would kind of be an instant an instant thing, especially with our primaries. We'd know who our candidates were. You know, Republicans were months behind Democrats this year because you guys decided who your candidates were, and we were still fighting it out until July. So There was um, no question on the Democratic side. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was very clear. And so, you know, and even in the general, when you have libertarian candidates, um, it would it would help. I think he brings up good points when he talks about it, about how people wouldn't think they're wasting their vote. Like, they could still vote for the Republican in, as their second choice and the, the, the Libertarian as their first or the Democrat as their second or however they want to do it. But instead of this rhetoric that you're throwing your vote away or you're going to force a runoff and then the turnout and how it always goes, you know, everything would be decided and so the votes would have more value on Election Day. They'd all be weighted the same. Um, so, I mean, I like the idea... Um, but I don't really know about the implementation of that voter education. I mean, I can imagine the first to go around would be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. And I think maybe one of the other issues would be, you know, it opens up people to be able to vote for third party candidates and then put their sort of secondary support behind one of the two major party candidates to the extent that it raises third parties up to actually maybe being competitive with the Democrats and the Republicans. I think uh, it may be the one thing you find a unified front on among Democrats and Republicans in, in preventing from happening. So uh, to wrap this up, what is your sense of where this race is at as we, you know, we're, we're what, about two and a half weeks away now or three and a half weeks from the election? Too far is what we are. But um it, you're talking about the Secretary of State's office, or Grace. I think, you know, I haven't seen any polling, but I I honestly believe that Barrow's going to fare much better than any of the other down-the-ballot candidates. Um, I think Kemp and Abrams are going to be very close, and some of the others are maybe a little bit more defined at this point. But I really feel that Barrow, if there's a, there's a down-the-ballot Democrat that can persevere, um, it'd be him. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I get the impression, particularly from the way in which he 
is conducting his messaging, conducting himself, that he's he's trying to be kind of a big tent candidate. Um, particularly given that the Secretary of State's office, if you know, if you have differing views on abortion or sex trafficking or or any of the other divisive issues in Georgia, um, you know, the Secretary of State's office doesn't have direct oversight over those things. So you can you can kind of step out of your ideological comfort zone to support somebody if you feel like they're just going to be uh, straight up better at the job. But with that, I think we will wrap that discussion. Um, so uh, we will turn it over to my discussion with Kaylee and Teasley about transportation. But uh, Jessica, thanks for joining the pod. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And for our third topic this week, we are now joined by Kaylee and Teasley to talk about where the governor candidates stand on transportation. Kaylee, and thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me once again. Transportation has been an issue that I think hasn't gotten a lot of attention in this race. Uh, But the two candidates for governor, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, have, I think, pretty diverging views on transportation, particularly as it relates to transit and bolstering transit options in the Atlanta area. Uh, Stacey Abrams has committed to statewide funding for transit from the state legislature in the form of motor fuel taxes and continued bonding authority, uh, which is basically the state borrowing a little money to contribute to transportation projects here and there. Um, Brian Kemp has not committed to that state funding for transit, uh, which is uh, unique in the sense that Atlanta's MARTA is the largest transit system to not have any to not have any dedicated uh, transit funding in it. Uh, Brian, when he talks about the, this, he often talks about uh, asking what a project is going to cost and who is going to pay for it. And his discussion of transportation and transit feels geared at reassuring rural voters um, that all of their tax dollars aren't going to be used on trains in Atlanta. Um, Kayleigh-Ann, what do you think of the the diverging transit plans offered up by these two candidates? I'll start off with Ms. Abrams. Uh, so Stacey has really, I believe, put forth a, a foot with uh, the transit. I think that by her kind of going and talking about statewide funding for MARTA and uh, regional transit um, has almost kind of scared rural voters and the fact that, like you said, they don't know where their money is going to be going. Um, but however, with Brian Kemp, he has not really addressed uh, public massive transit for the state of Georgia. And I think he's more so interested in the infrastructure within Georgia. So roads, bridges, um, what have you. I would say for regional transit, C.C. Abrams wants to make sure that every Georgian has an opportunity to work and compete in the state of Georgia. And I think part of that, it has to do with transportation, because if you live outside of where MARTA goes and it's harder i feel like it's harder for somebody without a car to come and work in the city of atlanta um also it's really expensive to live in atlanta so for people to have to live outside of atlanta and then commute in um is also a challenge because as we all know atlanta traffic is getting worse by the day um i remember in high school we would have to take back roads to school um, because the highway was just jammed in the morning, like like a complete like stop, like nobody was moving. I think with Miss Abrams, you're definitely going to want to you're definitely going to see um, her push towards public transit. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a key part of this discussion around economic mobility and economic inequality in Atlanta. Um, you know, being tied to a car means that if that's your only means for getting to work, then a sudden large car repair bill could make it more difficult to get to work, particularly if you're a low income worker, you spend a lot more time stuck in traffic, a lot more money on gas getting back and forth. Um, and there were recently statistics that came out showing that Atlanta, the Atlanta area had the highest income inequality between uh, the wealthiest and the poorest of any sort of major city, major city region in the country. So yeah, what, uh, you know, what else stands out to you, Kaylee Ann, about like, the importance of transit or, or how that mix is decided between, um, you know, choosing to invest more money in roads and having people rely on cars to get to where they need to go versus, um, you know, more public option, more public transit options. When you look at the way that Kemp and Abrams wants to do transit um, with Kemp, um, I know there have been proposals about building these kind of bypasses for semi-trucks, um, and I don't think that's a very good option. Um, if you just th- even think about the environmental impact, that would add so much to our carbon footprint um, than that's already than we already have in Atlanta, just by everybody idling on 75, 85, and 285, and what have you. Um, but I think if you were to wanted to make a smart investment in transit, you would invest in things like fuel-efficient buses. Even bikes in Atlanta, like we, like I know that the electric scooters are kind of starting to become popular, but even just like having bicycles in the city of Atlanta could reduce our carbon footprint. Now, obviously, you can't bike from like Douglasville to Atlanta, but for that, you would have regional transit. Um, And I think that would be the smartest investment rather than building more roads because you can build a road, but if somebody doesn't have a car, then there's no way they're going to be able to get to their job unless they walk, which is probably not the best option um but then at the same time you have things like uber and lyft that are also kind of adding into the transportation uh category of this election um and a lot of people i know a lot of people take uber and lyft but not everybody can afford uber and lyft um and i know that sometimes uh marta doesn't exactly go where everybody needs to go so sometimes you have to you know take a bus and then walk to their job or take take the bus and then have to Uber from the bus stop to their job because the bus doesn't go in the direction of their job. Um, so I think with transit, um, there needs to be, whoever the next governor needs to seriously think about um, how transit affects everybody. It's not just the people inside of 285. It's people outside of 285. It's people also within those kind of low-income uh pockets of our cities that need um, affordable transportation to get to their jobs so that they are able to provide for their families. Yeah, on this discussion around building bypasses, um, this has been an idea that's long been sort of a consistent Republican proposal. I can remember Governor Deal in his first election campaign was talking about this as sort of a central plank of his transportation plan. Basically, the idea being that if you um, create bypasses that 
you know, bypass Atlanta much further out than 285 does right now, that then you get all of that truck traffic to go around the metro Atlanta area. The interesting thing about that in, in the discussion around transit is I saw Brett Harrell, a state representative up in Gwinnett, um, I saw him quoted as saying, why should people who don't live on the I-85 corridor um, support MARTA funding in Gwinnett County because they may not end up using MARTA? Um, well, sort of by the same token, the question, I think that begs the question of why should you support a bypass if you don't live near it that you won't actually end up using? And I think the answer in both of those cases is that getting other cars off the road helps you if you're a driver. So if you're somebody who transit is not going to be convenient for because the line doesn't get built near you, if people who are currently driving decide to ride a train instead, their cars are not on the road creating traffic for you. It's the same argument that gets consistently made about getting semi trucks off the road in downtown Atlanta. Um, Kaylee, and I'm curious, though, um, because you're recently a, a new DC resident, right? Yeah. So what's been your experience in sort of the differences in getting around in DC, which has a major transit system, buses, metro, all of that, versus, you know, what it was like getting around Atlanta when you live there? Sure, sure. So I have absolutely loved my experience in DC. Um, and it's, there's so many things to do here. But what's great about DC is, like you said, the public transit. When I went off to college, everybody said, oh, you're going to be so spoiled by their public transit system. You know, you're going to be able to get everywhere. And, and that's, the, that's the true fact. I mean, I can really get anywhere I want to in D.C. without having to take an Uber, which is expensive. And everything is very walkable. Um, whereas in Atlanta, when I was younger, um, I, would, I would have to Uber. I'm, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. I would have to Uber places because what, what sense does it make for me to have to take two buses to get four miles down the road when I can just take an Uber and get 10 minutes down the road? Um, and I know that sounds pretentious, but some people, you know, obviously can't make that decision. Some people have to take the bus. And what I think was different between D.C. and Atlanta is that D.C. has a lot more stops than Atlanta does. Atlanta has, I think, 38 stops. D.C. has about 48, and they have, like, probably three times as much railroad tracks than MARTA does. So it goes outside of dc it goes all the way to maryland and it goes all the way to virginia but if you just look at marta it goes just to the tip top of 285 where indian creek stops and then down to the airport where atlanta stops and then out to he homes you know to the that and that's not very far from 285 but that's you know also not close so i think it's definitely easier for me to get around dc than it was for me to get around atlanta and i know a lot of people want to have uh, public transit like DC and Atlanta so that they are able to get more places in Atlanta right rather than just you know within 285 or just a little bit outside of 285 um, but also that just goes back to the funding you know we have to Georgia has to make tough decisions and one of the decisions is how much money are we going to put into transit if we don't put a lot of money into transit we're kind of going to be stuck with what we've been stuck with so far and so I appreciate, you know, the city of Atlanta with T-SPLOS kind of making those efforts to um, put some funding into uh, transit. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the core tension in like getting people to use transit, I think that I've also noticed living in D.C. is that 
if there's if it doesn't go to the places that you need to go, if the system is not big enough to where you can realistically give up a car to get to 70 or 80% of the places you need to go, then people are never going to take that step to give up their car. One, I think, positive development recently in, in policy in Georgia is the last year's passage of the ATL, which is the new transit governing body that instead of this sort of like what I think it's like five counties that are in Marta right now, Gwinnett would maybe be a new Marta County. This is sort of a bigger uh, umbrella organization of transit um, transit agencies that can bring in 13 counties in basically the entire metro Atlanta region and give them the chance to tax themselves through their sales taxes to fund transit improvements in their uh, in their community. Um, I think one thing that's been interesting about the politics of this issue in recent years has been the rise of the like transit Republican. I can remember Brandon Beach, uh, state senator in Alpharetta. He got a lot of pushback in one of his recent reelection campaigns for supporting expanded transit options. But um, I don't think he ended up losing his race, um, even though he is in a relatively cons- a pretty conservative district in a pretty conservative area. Um and so I think what is sort of starting to shift in this conversation and what sort of opened up an opportunity for transit to become a greater uh, share of Georgia's transportation footprint is Republicans and conservative-leaning people moving in that direction. Um, I, I think just the open question with this governor's race is, is Brian Kemp one of those transit Republicans? And would he, um, even if it's not his number one preference to boost transit funding through the state level, would he still support local efforts to um, let local communities decide to put more transit in their own neighborhoods? Whoever the next governor is, they need to be serious about transit, not just infrastructure, but also um, massive transit. There are a lot of people who live outside of the city of Atlanta who come in to work in the city of Atlanta. And I would say Quite a few people do not have the means to be able to go back and forth between Atlanta and wherever they reside um, with means of a car. Um, So I just hope that whoever the next governor is, that they're serious about making sure that all Georgians have an equal chance of being able to work in Atlanta, live in Atlanta, but also if they have to, you know, go back and forth between Atlanta and their home. Yeah, I think the one other thing to add in closing is that um, Stacey Abrams has talked pretty consistently on the trail. And I I uh, heard this from Aisha Yacoub when we talked for the podcast recently, that transit and transportation is not just sort of an economic issue, but it's important to people with disabilities who rely on paratransit. Um, and so like a fully inclusive vision of transportation in the state can't overlook and can't underinvest in paratransit in um, smaller transit systems in rural areas. Um, and I and I'm sure Republicans maybe would would hear the segment and complain about you know, it also requires spending on roads and things like that too. Um, but a but a comprehensive vision for transit really needs to take into account you know everyone's unique life circumstances. Um, and I think that. Consistently, what we find with our state's economy and with economic mobility in Georgia is that 
too many of our policies are leaving people behind in transit and transportation is just one example of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And with that, I think we are going to wrap it up. Uh, so Kaylee, and thanks for joining the pod. Always. Thank you so much. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.